The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to episode number 157 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. In this episode, which is part of our Women in Civil Engineering series, I will be speaking with Melissa Batula, the Deputy Secretary for Highway Administration at the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation, about her amazing career journey from starting in the private sector to now being responsible for overseeing all of the roadways in Pennsylvania, as well as 9,000 people who work for the DOT. She has an awesome story. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano. I'm a licensed professional engineer who practiced as a civil engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering myself. So since then, I've written a book entitled Engineer Your Own Success and have traveled the world helping engineers. Now, before we get started with this episode and share with you Melissa's awesome story, this is a free show and our sponsors do help us keep it free, so we ask that you please support them. And now, I'd like to recognize our sponsors for this episode. First up, we have ACI. Are you a member of the American Concrete Institute? ACI is a worldwide community of 30,000 professionals, educators, and students in more than 100 countries the premier global community dedicated to the best use of concrete. ACI members push the concrete industry further, adapting to new technology, investing in their careers, and dedicated to improving concrete design, materials, and construction. You don't have to be an ACI member to work in the concrete industry, but if you want to exceed expectations in it, there's no better place to be. Whether you're a student just starting out or have years under your belt, ACI membership ensures that no matter what changes the world brings, you will be prepared to thrive and your life's work will last for generations. Right now, ACI is offering a $30 discount on new individual and young professional memberships. Student memberships are free. Join ACI today at concrete.org forward slash podcast three zero. That's C-O-N-C-R-E-T-E dot O-R-G forward slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T Three zero. Now I'd like to recognize our other sponsor for today's episode, Menard Group USA. Do you have projects where you are faced with building on soft or loose ground? Does it seem like all of the good sites are taken and you're always building on poor soils that are a challenge for conventional foundation approaches? Menard may be able to help. As a specialty ground improvement contractor, Menard works nationally and internationally providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Menard's techniques include controlled modulus columns, wick drains, earthquake drains, vibro stone columns, dynamic compaction, rapid impact compaction, and soil mixing. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, processing areas, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, containment structures, and platforms. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard Group USA, for help on your next project, please visit www.menardgroupusa.com. 
group.com. That's www.mendardgroup.com. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest for today, Melissa Batula. Melissa J. Batula, PE, was appointed Deputy Secretary for Highway Administration in January 2020. As the first female to hold this position, Batula manages 9,000 dedicated staff members who share her commitment to serving the transportation needs of citizens across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Her role includes overseeing investments in PennDOT assets, ensuring quality and safety across the department, and advancing innovative strategies to solve Pennsylvania's 21st century transportation challenges. She's adept at building strong relationships with industry and government partners and is committed to guiding the department's 11 district offices and successfully carrying out PennDOT's mission. Now listen, when you hear this interview, you have to think about the challenges that Melissa faces on a regular basis in a job like hers with so many responsibilities. And then we get into how COVID has affected her operations as well there at PennDOT. What she's doing is extraordinary and to have a civil engineer in a position like that doing the job that she's doing. It really made me proud to be a civil engineer. And I'm just thrilled to share this week's civil engineering conversation with you with Melissa Batula. Here it is. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'm excited to welcome on our guest for today's episode. Our guest today is Melissa Batula. Deputy Secretary for Highway Administration for PennDOT. Melissa, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks, Anthony. I appreciate it. Melissa, thank you for joining us. You are certainly someone that I think a lot of civil engineers look up to. Um, you've accomplished a lot in your career, and we're thrilled to have you. The best place to start is is talking a little bit about your position, and then we can kind of get into your career journey as a whole, if that's okay with you. Sounds good. All right. So tell us about what you do on a daily basis, because it sounds really big to a lot of people, but I think like we want to know some of the details of what goes into that. So I guess in, in the most basic level, what I do is what I'm responsible for is, is really getting everything ready to get any of those highway and bridge construction projects out the door, you know, out into construction, and then maintaining and operating those roads once they're in place. So all said and done, it's about 40,000 miles of road, about 25,000 bridges. But when you really get into it, it's it's about keeping those roads safe and passable, you know, so there's new projects coming out, making sure those go in fine and or, you know, making sure we're taking care of crack sealing and winter operations. So getting those plows down. So I'll say coming back to your day, what happens on a day to day basis? Well, it could be anything from addressing a critical issue, you know, uh, landslides, if you will, in the southwest pop up or. Today, we're seeing snow in the Northeast, so making sure we have the plows, you know, and the salt we need to take care of those. Or it could be planning into the future. So, again, sitting where we're at right now, doing a lot of discussion with staff on, you know, are we ready for winter? Of course, we are. But, you know, what are those plans? Making sure we have everything in place to be have a successful winter. Or it can be dealing with our um, IT staff with what are those future systems that we need to have in place to be successful into the future. So we're working on system to modernize how we do utility relocations, things like that. Always trying to keep one eye forward. For the most part, I spend a whole lot of time talking, whether that be internal or external. So I can have touch base meetings with, you know, one of our, we have 11 regional offices across the state. So touching base with our leadership there just to see are they having issues? Is there anything they need assistance with? Or discussions with our external partners about what our construction program is going to be looking like in the next couple of years. 
to even uh, national conversations. So I, I'm engaged in some committees and councils nationwide that's focused on transportation. So trying to learn from my peers in other states, how they're handling challenges, and you know if I can bring any of those back to Pennsylvania. But I'd say at the most basic level, it's probably like any manager. I'm just trying to make sure that we allocate those resources where we need to have them to really keep that engine rolling. I would agree. I'm sure that like aspects of what you do, civil engineering managers or, you know, in different, whether it's private or public, there's probably certainly some things that are similar. But I think what's interesting to me is a lot of civil engineers get really excited about having a big project, you know, a big bridge, a big roadway, whereas you're kind of overseeing a whole state (laughs) full of roads and bridges and different things that you have to kind of deal with on a regular basis. So I would imagine that there's a large number of people also that you're kind of overseeing and kind of are responsible for, you know, making sure they're doing the right things. And talk a little bit about the importance of, well, not just the importance of interacting with people. We know that's important in civil engineering, but also like in your case, having a good network of people in place, because obviously you can't be so much in the details with all the things you have going on. So talk a little bit how that looks on a regular basis. Do you have meetings with, you know, your leaders in different divisions or however it's set up there? I'm just curious as to how you kind of manage that part of the job. It's interesting you bring it up, especially with what we're dealing with with COVID. So that was one of the biggest challenges we had. So so to answer your question, yeah, I have daily meetings with, you know, statewide as we responded to the the COVID challenge just to make sure we were having those uh, straight communications on how we were going to be addressing these challenges we were seeing. So we do have those daily meetings. I'd say stepping into more of, I'll say, um, the day-to-day life, how we're doing that. So yeah, I have report outs from like our bridge inspection. You know, what's going on with that? What trends are we seeing? Are we seeing uh, an increase of bridges that are being rated poor? Are we taking care of any bridge deficiencies we're seeing? Is there anything that surprises us? When we do have bridge problems or you see a bridge closure for the condition of the bridge, I'll get a report by an email that tells me that that happened. And then I could start asking questions like, well, what did we know about that bridge ahead of time? You know, or how are we going to be managing that traffic around that situation? So I can really start to get in and start asking some of those questions to make sure we've thought of different things and and at least make sure we all collectively kind of agree on what that best path is forward. On a regular basis, and I think this happens with all managers and leaders, is that you have a a multitude of things on your plate and you ultimately have to decide and kind of prioritize on where you spend your energy, your attention, your focus, your hours for that day. How does that look? Is that something kind of you check in with each morning and kind of decide on what you really need to focus on today? I mean, obviously, I understand you have to put out, I'm sure, fires, things happen and you have to jump into them. But in, in terms of like just daily or like weekly planning, as you said, I have such an amazing staff. I have to rely on them. That, that's one of the, probably the, the hardest challenges as you come up through an organization is understanding that, you know, you do have to get, delegate those tasks down, you know. So I have staff that are purely focused on bridge inspection. Like I said, I talked about that. Each of our original offices, they're dealing with those daily issues as they come up. It's only when those items come up to me, I'll say at the, at the highest level where it's, it's a a challenge that affects other areas that I have to be engaged. So I trust them to do uh, their jobs and to do what they do best. But when there's, you know, items that cross over other areas, for one example is my bridge inspection staff is in my maintenance side of my house. My bridge design staff or my chief bridge engineers in the design side or the project delivery side of the house. 
So making sure that we get those uh, cross communications, even when I shared, you know, we were looking at some flooding these last couple of days with all the rain. So we were looking at it from a maintenance response standpoint. So, you know, are we making sure that we have everything in place so that that water can clear the roadways, but at the same time being mindful that this could impact our bridges. So have we engaged our bridge inspection staff so that they're ready to go if need be for post-bridge and and, uh, flood inspections? So it's kind of knitting all that together, make sure we got the right teams talking to the right teams and collectively make the best decisions. That's really fascinating. I mean, what's really interesting to me about your position is that it seems like it's really a blend of, you know, regular items that have to be done on a regular basis. Plus, by the way, when anything happens like rain, snow, any outside circumstances, then you have to also (laughs) account for that. So it's combination of, you know, you have, I'm sure your routine things like everyone does, you always have to be prepared for things that happen, weather, et cetera. I'm sure that that kind of keeps you on your toes. It's great. I mean, I, I say it in, in, in the best way I can is it's, I mean, you never know really what the day's going to bring. It is never the same old thing twice. You got some other influencers too. Uh, there could be a legislation that comes across and says, hey, we need a review of this legislation. How is this going to impact PennDOT? And how would that change, say, how we design a bridge or how we operate a facility? So it, it's always something new and exciting. I'll say that. One of the things that we'll get into a little bit is your career progression. And and actually, what I'd like to ask you now is just maybe you could give a little overview of your career progression. I mean, I know I'm sure there was a lot of different steps that you took, but just give us some of the main kind of milestones in the progression of your career. I will say I started out, believe it or not, as a board draftsman. So I took a summer job, literally uh, doing quantities. And, you know, if you remember the days of cross sections and manually calculating all those to, to see where you were on earthwork, that's where my career began. And I actually progressed up through when that ranks. Um, I'll never forget, uh, we got a job for McDonald's, of all people, doing one of their facilities and they wanted CAD drawings. And uh, we had no idea what CAD was at that point. AutoCAD was a nifty little program we used to, to print out coordinate geometry uh, going way back to that time. So I got the, the great pleasure of trying to figure out how in the world to do a CAD drawing. And we got through it. Lost our shirt on that particular job, but um, it, it launched us forward. So uh, went from drafter, I'd say, to designer started doing a lot of uh, developmental work. So a lot of subdivisions, land developments, those type of things. That was about the first 20 years of my career. And then I moved over into the public sector and I took the job for PennDOT, went through contract management, consultant areas, got this great opportunity and accelerated bridge program where we were really focused on reducing our structurally deficient bridges. Went from that role into asset management And then from asset management, I came back full circle to the design side as the highway delivery division chief. And it was from there that I went to, I was an acting bureau director for project delivery and then to this position. So that's the brief overview of kind of where I've been and what got me here. We're going to dig into it a little bit later because I want to ask you a little bit about that transition from the private sector to the public sector, which we'll get to. But a couple questions before that. I want to talk a little bit about your progression into leadership position. I know a lot of civil engineering professionals, they say like there's this kind of proverbial fork in the road where you kind of decide if you really want to focus on the technical stuff and become a real technical expert and do mostly technical, 
or you know you want to go into that project management, people management, and then maybe into some higher leadership role, depending on public, private, wherever you might work. And I'm just wondering, in your case, was it always clear to you that you wanted to get into you know management, leadership, or did that at some point in your career came up for you through your progression? I was the introvert to the max. I was very happy on the technical side. And if you had asked me then, there was no way I ever wanted to go into that management side. But I worked for a very small firm. And you know, as you get to do those more elaborate designs, you kind of start getting into the client liaison. You get kind of get start getting into that management piece. But I was able to do both. And then once I got into the public sector, it wasn't anything I set out to do, but at the same token, you found that you had those areas. I was able to bring in ideas from different areas, I guess, and kind of stitch those together. So it kind of had that same feel as technical. I was bringing in that expertise. It was just in a totally different realm. But no, I never would have projected the course my career took, but I was happy I did it. Yeah, that's great because I think a lot of civil engineers maybe feel like they're very strong technically which might indicate or mean that they need to stay very technical or that, you know, they may not have management or leadership opportunities because of that. And that obviously wasn't the case for you. I mean, you sounded like you are really sound technically, but you were able to get some great, obviously, management and leadership opportunities that you've kind of capitalized on here. So that's good to hear, I think, for some people out there that might have to make some decisions. And the other question kind of attached to that that I'll ask you is, being a leader requires a certain set of skills that maybe if you're just going to be doing technical work, they're different, right? More people interaction skills, potentially, you know, more speaking in public, potentially, depending on what you do. For you, was that something that you kind of noticed and, you know, you focused on those skill sets or how did you address having to start to do some of those things that we weren't necessarily taught in school and we don't necessarily know if we're going to have to do them or not as engineers? I've served as a mentor at times, and that question has come up before. And what I tell people is to go to their comfort zone and use that to propel into that that new area that they're moving into. So in full disclosure, I honestly remember when I had to start making my first business calls, and I would agonize over picking up that phone and making that phone call because I was so worried about what that person might ask me, terrified. What happened is I did have that technical background as I worked on these various projects in the private sector. And I found when I went to the public meetings to talk about it, I was so solid because I knew the project inside and out and it was my base. So that was my comfort zone. And once I used that, I could talk technically about it. And the more I did it, the more comfortable I got with using that skill set to point now where, you know, I'm probably looking at a presentation over a thousand people at APC in a month. It goes from that extreme just by, again, you know, using your strength to start widen, uh, widening that skill set. I often tell engineering professionals that a lot of these skills, I think people believe that you're either born with them or you're not. I don't agree with that. And it sounds like from some of your experience that you can develop these skills, you can get better at these skills. And I think that unfortunate kind of misnomer is something that deters a lot of engineers from saying, I can do that. And, you know, and so it sounds to me like from your experience, you have been able to develop the skills. Yes, you absolutely can. You really do think they're your weakness. You'll never overcome it. But if you trust yourself, you can really get there. Absolutely. Let's get back to kind of your responsibilities a little bit at PennDOT, specifically around COVID-19. I mean, you know, we just talked a little bit about how you have to deal with things as they come up. And, you know, this is something that a lot of us never had to deal with before, of course, a pandemic in, in our workplaces. 
And of course, for you with everything that you have going on there and all that you're responsible for, talk a little bit about how PennDOT's operations were affected with COVID-19 and what you had to do to kind of navigate that. And I guess still are navigating that. Let me just say, I've never been as proud of our organization as I have been over this last eight months. It's just been such an incredible journey. It's easy to forget just how far we've come. So, you know, I'll back up into that Mark's time frame. To be totally honest, we had no clue, you know, what this was going to turn into. We're trying to do contingency planning. Are we talking weeks? Are we talking 30 days? None of us anticipate anything even remotely close to, to eight months, of course. But at that time, what we really did is we were able to get, I'd say, singular focus. And our focus at that time was to make sure that we were supporting life-sustaining operations for that pandemic. So we were trying to reduce the spread of the virus, and we were trying to make sure everything we did supported the medical community and their response to it. That was the prime focus. So from an operation standpoint, what that meant is we weren't distracting from that effort either. So, you know, if we're fully operational, we're taking those supplies that needed to go to the medical community, and now we're using them just to maintain our operations. Plus, of course, we had no protocols at all. This is before we were using the term social distancing. We weren't even using masks yet. There were so many unknowns. Right out of the gate, again, coming back to that supporting life-sustaining operations, we scaled back our maintenance operations to just a few critical crews that we needed just to make sure we could keep the roadway system uh, free and passable so that we could, again, support those operations. We used that time then to start developing those internal protocols. So how we were going to do the business of maintenance, if you will, while we're in this pandemic. So how do we keep ourselves separated? You know, how are we going to approach staffing? How are we going to keep them separated from each other? Those types of discussions. We did very similar on the construction side where we took that pause, where we took the time to work with industry, work with our teams and decide how can we approach this business in the safest way possible? What makes the most sense? And by the time we got to the beginning of May, we were able to get nearly all our construction projects going again. Plus we had all our maintenance staff re-engaged so that we were back there doing the pothole filling and everything we needed to do. But now we had all those protocols in place. And it also gave us that time we needed to make sure that we could get the supplies we needed to keep our folks safe. So the hand sanitizer, you know, you forget you couldn't get that stuff back then. It was an extremely challenging time. I'll say on the design side, that was probably the area that was the the biggest uh, success we had. And it was almost seamless. I got to say, we caught a break, too. We had just gone through a computer refresh. Like, literally, we finished in February where we had issued laptops out to just about all our staff. So we had had towers before that. So we suddenly had these brand new laptops and thank goodness we did because we put everybody into telework and then that's where our design staff still are today. Probably the biggest struggle we had was I'll say the legal side. So anytime we had to deal with the courthouses, you know, they were shut down. So we had the, the real restrictions on how some of those interactions went. But, you know, we came up with, uh, we got processes in place for digitally uh, sealing plans for electronic signatures. So we really kept that design engine going. And like I said, at this point, we really haven't missed much of a beat at all. You know, we're, we're pretty much back to full operations on construction, maintenance, and design. And on the construction side, we've actually been able to make up some ground that we lost there initially, just because traffic's down. So we've been able to work under times that maybe we weren't before uh, because of the, the lower levels of traffic. So 
It's been amazing to see, I'll say, the innovation that our teams have come up with. Our team did this on the fly where they came up with not only those protocols, but you know they have uh, different processes that we can do virtual inspections. So when we have you know the highway occupancy permits, probably a lot of your, your listeners are doing those projects that we were able to use like uh, digital logs. So pictures and certs and those type of things to make sure that all that work was conforming to our specifications without sending somebody out into the field. And at the same time, we were doing things like uh, traffic management centers. Believe it or not, we had folks actually managing those systems from their own homes. So just an amazing amount of innovation that has allowed us to be successful under this COVID situation. That's all very interesting. And actually, one question that I have on that, Melissa, that I've been thinking about is through those months of, I'm sure, especially March, April, May, I'm sure that traffic flow, you know, as you said, was much lower than it typically would have been. In a situation like that, is that where you can then say, okay, maybe we don't need as much out there in terms of crews and we can use them in other places? Did you have to keep like monitoring where you needed people and moving people around based on how much traffic was out there, how much medical, you know, attention was needed in certain areas? Did it like change your workflow at all because of how the patterns were and stuff like that? What it more changed is when and where we could be working. We were able to look at the data we were seeing on those traffic flows and say, like, say we were normally under construction restriction at 6 a.m. because we knew the a.m. peak was coming. And when we started to see from the traffic volumes is, you know what, that really wasn't hitting until 8 o'clock or maybe it wasn't hitting until 9 o'clock. So we could work with the contractor to extend that so they could keep working until, say, 8 a.m. instead of having to cut it off at, like I said, or 5 a.m. Or I know some of our projects in the Pittsburgh area, I was just talking to our uh, district executive out there about one of their projects that said about just having the uh, pirates and the penguins not playing really gave them opportunities to work weekends that they wouldn't have been able to work before because uh, normally you have to shut down those operations because you got to get all that traffic to and from those events. So things like that were changing those operations. It changed the time at which we did some of our maintenance functions. Some of the mowing operations that we normally would have done early spring, we weren't able to do that because we were at that point where we were really restricting how much we were out. So it means we got out there a little bit later than we normally would. But at this point, we pretty much caught up on all that work. Again, it's like every time you mention something else, you know, the pirates, the penguins, just remembering like all the stuff that you're trying to manage. And Pennsylvania, for those of you not from the Northeast, it's a much bigger state maybe than some people may think. I went to school in Lafayette College in Lehigh Valley, and Pittsburgh was like, I feel like it was almost like in another world. It was like such a long drive away, right? So like a lot of times people just think of us in the Northeast as very small states, and there's not a lot of ground to cover, but there's a lot of ground and there's a lot of roads. Every one of them requires attention in some way, shape, or form. So it's hearing you talk through all these things really reinforces it. And kind of like getting back to that a little bit, you know, you talked a lot about your team and, and of course the wonderful job that they've been doing. Just for like, you know, frame of reference for our listeners, when you say team or teams, like how many people are you dealing with, like in generalities? Like I'm sure you have people you talk to on a daily basis and then there's larger groups and so on. Maybe you can give us like a little bit of an overview on that. My entire staff across the whole state is about 9,000 people all together. About 7,000 of them are maintenance employees. So they're the ones that are out there, you know, just keeping everything going on the roadway itself. Again, the crack sealing, the potholes, the plowing the roads, all of those activities. And then the other 2,000 are split between, I'd say, the design, the construction, and the operations side. 
as far as those that directly report to me, I'm probably right around uh, the 20 mark as far as direct reports. So those are our district executives for each of our regions. We have, like I said, 11 district offices across the state. And then the heads of my areas like project delivery or maintenance and operations and those type. Uh, so overall, that's the breadth of it. I'd say as an engineer, it's exciting to have hundreds of engineers literally at your fingertips that, you know, we've got an expert in everything you can possibly imagine. So anytime you're seeing a, a problem, there's going to be somebody else in the state that's got that expertise. Plus, of course, all our consultant partners. So literally to have access to that many engineers just to bounce an idea off of or, or an issue is just honestly is remarkable. At EMI, we have a, a series on this podcast, an ongoing series called Women in Civil Engineering. This episode will be part of that series. It's important to us. My wife is a civil engineer, and I know that when we graduated, she was one of the few uh, women in the class. And it's something that at EMI, we're you know, interested in kind of continuing to highlight women in civil engineering because there's a lot of great women out there doing very interesting things in the field. You were the first woman to be appointed Deputy Secretary for Highway Administration at PennDOT. Talk about that for a minute. Like, what does that mean to you? It's great. It's wonderful. It's remarkable. My answer to this question now is so much different than it would have been 10 years ago. And why I say that is 10 years ago, I would have said, it has nothing to do with me being a woman. That should mean nothing. I'm keeping my head down. I'm doing my job. I'm just the same as one of the guys. So don't even talk about the fact that I'm a woman. What really started to change that mindset was, um, honestly, I was with a group of female colleagues and, and we were just actually talking and something, I think it was an energy commission came up and somebody says, you know, who would be great on a commission like that would be a retired female engineer. So we were like, okay, great. Who would that be? And, you know, not one of us could name a single female retired engineer. We could probably name 50 guys that were retired. None of us could name one female engineer that was retired. And it went, wow, we're on that leading edge. You know, you don't realize that we didn't have those role models, those female role models to look for. We're in. So whether you like it or not, people are watching you because you're somebody to watch, if that makes sense. So it's like it's changed my mindset with that regard. And I'd say expanded it. You know, so now I have a duty not only to myself but to make sure I'm helping that path for others, if you will, so that maybe they don't feel like they have to, well, don't talk about being a woman, don't act too girly, just keep your head down and try to be one of the guys. So it's really changed that mindset. And in a way, this position is actually quite freeing because it's, again, it's, it's me getting more comfortable with just being me. I don't have to be constrained by, you know, just being one of the guys. Women that are in civil engineering are just starting their careers they have people like yourself that they can look up to, that they can speak to, that they can reach out to, that maybe, you know, you didn't have. Every few years, we have more and more people. The importance of this Women in Civil Engineering series for me really came from talking with my wife, who I think at times was just didn't feel that confident for that reason, because she kind of felt like, hey, I'm maybe the only woman here. And, you know, and that could make it challenging sometimes in getting up and doing some of the things that we talked about earlier on, like speaking in public and not having someone to maybe ask a question or guide you through something. So I do think that it's important that there is an emphasis on this. I recently did um, the Women's Transportation Seminar, WTS, in the New York City area, and they actually have a mentoring program where they take uh, females that have been in the field for a while that are successful and they match them up with women that are just starting their careers. And it's a great program because we have 
now more and more women that are advancing in the field, they're the ability to create programs like this. To your point, that's why I think we do need to pay attention to this because we need to create those pathways. We have a great mentorship in PennDOT. It's, it's called the LEAD program to help women. And I think sometimes the men struggle with that. It's like, well, why are the women getting that special attention? I'm like, you don't understand the confidence issues that we're trying to overcome with our women. I get to hear them, you know, and I hear them describe their work with, I just did this, or I only was responsible for that, or tending to say the word, we did this instead of saying, I did this, when that's the reality. And there's still so much work to do with that to get our our young women coming up into the field confident with their own abilities. It's not that there's any difference between them, but again, getting them comfortable with their own achievements so that they can compete with the guys. Because I want everybody at the table. I want everybody to put in for that position and truly pick the best one. That's what it's about at the end. Part of, I think, the inspiration for the series too, is we work with a lot of civil engineering companies just doing training and things of that nature. And a lot of times when you navigate through some of these websites, you know, and you click on like the leadership tab, you see mostly men. We want to see more women and we want younger women that are saying, you know, what can I accomplish in my career? And they're looking at leaderships of firms. They want to see people like themselves, again, for confidence purposes, like you said. And so I think it's important. I'm glad we're doing the series and we're, we're really happy to have you as part of it as someone who's such a leader in the field. So it's great to have you doing this. Let's jump back in your career a little bit because you started off in the private sector, which you had mentioned. And then at some point in time, you know, you went to PennDOT. That's something I think a lot of listeners ask me about. Can you talk a little bit about the private to public sector? And I never worked in the public sector. I didn't make that jump. Tell us about the decision. I mean, they're two totally different kind of animals working for private, working for public. Talk about what led you down that path. It was a multifaceted decision. There was a lot that went into it. But like I shared a little bit before, I was doing developments before. And I had gotten to a point in my career where I was pretty much doing everything. It was great. You know, I was able to be there at the exception or the inception of the project, get into the concept stage, kind of sketching that out, preliminary, final, all of that. But it also meant presenting the projects at, you know, various boards and commissions. So I was going to zoning hearing boards. I was going to planning commission, you know, board of supervisors, planning commissions, county commissioners. And what that was doing was those were all evening meetings. Sometimes, you know, the private sector, you've got that flexibility. You leave a little bit early, perhaps, try to race home, try to get dinner on the table, and then boom, right back out the door, you know, to cover that meeting that you had to cover. And at the time, my son was about eight years old. My daughter was in high school. And I recognized that for her, you know, I was in this precious last few years, if you will, before she was going to go off to college and, and whatever followed. And my son being eight years old, my evening meetings were really starting to have an impact on him. Literally, you know, I'm the engineer. So yeah, you could actually plot it out on a graph. I went to an evening meeting the next day in school, he had a rough day and it was that direct. And so I had that on my mind. And at the same time, I was at that point where I was really starting to look at where I was and and where am I in my life and what is the meaning of what I'm doing? What's the impact of what I'm doing? There was a service component there that I I really wasn't feeling. I couldn't see where my efforts were necessarily contributing to society the way I would have wanted them to. There is a desire that I wanted to do what was best for my neighbors and society and overall. So the public sector gave me that ability to say, you know what, everything I'm doing, I'm taking this skill set and I'm doing it for the benefit of those I live with, the people I work with, 
the people I, I serve. And that really had its attraction. So those two together, I think, made it the perfect storm. You know, it was a difficult transition. I mean, that's certainly not a decision to take lightly, but it was certainly the right call. It hit all those boxes for me, and, and I'm so glad I made that change. It's always helpful, I think, to hear people talk a little bit about their decision-making processes, especially around big career decisions, because I do feel like while your situation may not be the same as someone else, still thinking through it, like you suggest, which is thinking through it from all avenues, like, you know, for family, for your own career, for the people that you serve in the community as an engineer, doing like a 360 approach for you, it was kind of a win, win, win. Like it was a win for your family. It was a win for you in your career. It was a win for the community because you wanted to do something you were passionate about in terms of being able to serve and, and make a real impact. So that's a great way to think about it. And I think a great, something that you can apply out there if you're listening and you have some big career decisions to make as well. And one other question around that point is, how did the private sector experience, if at all, help you in your PennDOT? I'd say it gives me a much fuller picture of, I'll say, the entire environment. So, like I said, I work with communities. You know, I've worked with boards of supervisors, zoning boards, you know, understanding comprehensive plans and how land use and their plans for the land impacts that community. So, again, keep in mind what that vision is at that level. So, that was invaluable. The other aspect is really just understanding business side of it. I certainly understand just flat out the economics behind something. You know, you miss 30 days and that's now an interest payment on a parcel that's not bringing in revenues for, you know, whoever's trying to do that development. And I'll say, you know, coming back even to a a smaller group then for the engineering firm itself, I work for a small firm. I know what it's like to try to, to struggle through cash flow. I remember trying to make decisions on who gets paid this week when things are tight, you know, trying to shake the, the trees to get those accounts receivable and to be able to do those activities. We've got so many consultant partners or contracting partners. Having that mindset and that understanding, I think, helps with the policy side to, you know, you can't always fix all of those things, but at least understanding those challenges so we can do what we can to try to not be that part of that problem, if you will, and and to help facilitate with that understanding. I think that has helped me overall in my career. That goes both ways. I think it's great when we have engineering professionals that have gone from the private to the public sector because they have an understanding of what everyone's going through on the project, all stakeholders, all parties. And then from the flip side as well, I've seen it where people have worked in the public sector and then they've transitioned into the private sector. And they're also able to understand what the engineer on the other side is dealing with in terms of roadway safeties, et cetera. And so I do think it's important that we have professionals with those different perspectives in the industry because it can be really valuable in terms of getting projects completed. All right, Melissa, last question here before we go into our final hot seat segment. What are some of the current challenges or opportunities at PennDOT? Challenges. I'm going to cover a little bit of funding, people, and I'd say safety. So I'm going to start with the safety one. That's always on our minds. You know, how do we keep the public safe? How do we keep our employees safe, the whole workforce? We had a work zone intrusion just this week where uh, an errant vehicle hit a construction vehicle, which hit somebody. And and fortunately, they live, but they're in bad shape. So trying to do everything we can to try to, again, keep everybody safe, you know, even under COVID, you know, how do I keep my workforce safe while we're out there plowing the snows? Other piece I just want to touch on briefly was our people. We're hiring folks. So, you know, if anybody out there has a CDL or, you know, you want to come in, we're we're constantly having to build that workforce of tomorrow. 
we're seeing a lot of retirements as the baby boomers retire. So again, just trying to make sure we stay attractive for that new workforce. And then funding. You know, funding's the big one that's forever a challenge. But as I shared, those traffic volumes went down under COVID. And we're primarily funded through the gas tax. I mean, so literally there's a $450 million hole that, you know, those dollars are never coming back. And that's on top of, you know, underfunding transportation by the tune of about $8 billion each year. When you think about it, the interstate system was built 60 years ago and it was designed for 50 years, you know, so we need this huge infusion again to be able to handle those improvements overall. So I'd say those are the biggest challenges, and I'll just real briefly touch on the opportunity. I'd say it's technology. When I look at the workforce of tomorrow, you know, thinking about those augmented reality where you could see the the project design right there against the the terrain, if you will, the natural. That's like the the virtual reality stuff that the kids are doing with the video games today. So using that as those tools to not only propel how we're doing our work, but to get that workforce of tomorrow into our industry to make sure we continue to have the highway and bridge designers and builders of tomorrow. All right. So we're going to take a real quick break. We'll come back and we'll finish it up with Melissa and we'll put Melissa on the civil engineering hot seat. Stick with us. Civil engineering podcast. Civil engineering podcast. All right. I'm back with our guest for today, Melissa Batula. Deputy Secretary for Highway Administration at PennDOT, and it's time to put Melissa on the civil engineering hot seat. Melissa, you ready? Yes, I am. Go ahead, Anthony. All right. First question, are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific morning routine or a lunchtime routine or just something that you do consistently on a daily basis that contributes to your success? I'm a little bit of a lark, so I'm up about 4.15 every morning. Not because I have to, but because uh, that's my me time. So that's my time to exercise, pray, meditate, study if I need to study, and I guard it carefully. So before six o'clock, nobody can have that time. That's my time before the world goes crazy. All right, next one. What's one book that you might recommend to engineers or just one book that you found to be helpful in your professional or personal development? Okay, well, I'm going to be totally nerd here. Prof. The Pocket Ref by Thomas Glover. This thing is just a little black handbook of everything in the world you could possibly imagine, every formula, every unit conversion, and it doesn't stop there. It's got like airport codes. If you're a pepper fan or a foodie, it's got a Schofield pepper scale in it. It's a tiny little book, and like I said, totally for nerds, but everything in the world you could possibly want, it's right there at your fingertips. What was it again? What was the name of the book? It's called Pocket Ref. It's just a little black book. It's about an inch thick, maybe three inches wide and maybe six inches. It could literally go in the back pocket. So, Next one, thinking back on your managers of the past, I'm sure you've had you know several managers throughout your career. If you just think of some of your favorite managers and no need to name anyone, but what made them your favorite? What were some characteristics of some really great managers that you had? They probably fall into three categories. And I'd say the first is those that believed in me. And I'll say when I didn't myself, or maybe they had good reason that I really wasn't quite ready yet, but they gave me an opportunity. So it might not have been in my job description or above what I was doing, but they believed in me and kind of gave me that that shot, if you will. The second category for totally different reason, those that challenged me. So I can think of one in particular that took the time to know me so well, he knew my weaknesses, and he called me out on them. Normally, you hide, you guard, you try to keep those weaknesses hidden, and uh, he took the time to try to develop it. So that was huge. 
third category was ones that empowered me. And the one I was thinking about with this is, again, coming back to, hey, keep your head down, act like one of the guys, don't be too girly. And this particular individual was very honest. I mean, it's here I am, this is me, like it or lump it. And and that's how uh, she conducted herself. And it really showed me what that means to just be your true and authentic self, however that may be. You don't have to conform to what everybody else expects you to be. Just be yourself. And that was monumental for me. That first one too that you said, I think is something that a lot of people forget about is that when you're leading people, they need to know you believe in them. I think it gives them an amazing amount of confidence. And sometimes people may believe in their team, but they just don't let them know that. You know, you can't take that for granted because I think by you saying it or making it clear to them, you know, I've seen that make a really big impact in terms of the success of a team. So, I mean, all, all great ones there and, and certainly some of them that, that stick out from some of my experience as well. All right. I've got one final question for you here, Melissa. We call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with a civil engineer and you had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her, and you had to give him or her one piece of career advice in that short period of time, what would it be? Well, I'm going to cheat and give them two. So number one, follow your opportunities and uh, take your passion with you. So I would never project that this is my career path. So, you know, you follow those opportunities. And the second one is get out there and fail. And nobody likes to use that word, but I think fear of failure holds so many people back. Give yourself permission to fail. Give it a go. You'll come back so much stronger than you ever thought was possible, and you'll learn so much. I know I've learned so much more from my failures than than I ever have from my successes. It has built me who I am and made me stronger throughout it. So get out there, get messy, fail. I think it's great advice. I think you're right. I think failure does hold a lot of people back and it prevents them from taking steps that could open up doors for them, you know, that they may not have thought of. And I think too, that first thing that you said is important in that I think some engineers think that they have to like have their whole career charted out. They know exactly where they're going and they need to take all these certain steps. And like you said, you had no idea that you would end up in the position that you're in right now. And it's a, obviously it's an important and a powerful position in terms of having an impact on a community, on a state, on the safety of people, which I think a lot of civil engineers really long to do. But it's just great to know that, like you said, that was just there. You kind of made your way to that and based on a career decisions and things of that nature. So that's a really good message. So once again, Melissa Batula, thank you so much for taking some time to join us on the Civil Engineering Podcast. It was really a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much, Anthony. Really appreciate the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast. I certainly did for a lot of reasons. One of them being, we just haven't had a lot of civil engineers who work in the public sector on the podcast. Whenever we get the chance to interview a civil engineer in the public sector, I think it's a really good thing because it's important for us to understand how civil engineers in government are really overseeing a lot of very important components of our infrastructure that are very related to the safety and welfare of the public. And also, it's a different career path for civil engineers. It's one that's available, and it's one that's out there. And if some of our listeners might be considering it, we always want to have those different options. So it was an absolute pleasure to get to spend some time with Melissa. I know how busy she is, and I think she really gave us a good understanding of what you will do if you you know, work in government, what some of the responsibilities can be, what some of the challenges can be. Every job has challenges, of course. They're just different, depending on the job you take and the area you live in and so on and so forth. 
I just want to remind you too that we do have a lot of training programs that we continue to run online at the Engineering Management Institute. I know many of our listeners are interested in building their people skills and leadership skills, building their project management skills, and we continue to run our courses, all of them which you could find at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Simply click on the training tab there and you'll see all of the courses that we have upcoming. And you can always reach out to us through the website to learn more about our courses and how we can come into your company and build a custom program just for you, which we've had a lot of success with many civil engineering companies across the country. And don't forget, you can find the show notes for this specific episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 157. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books that Melissa or myself mentioned during the episode. I will also say that if you you haven't checked it out yet, you can check out our new podcast that we've been publishing now for a while, This Week in Civil Engineering. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's more of a news-related podcast focused on all of the big things that are happening in the world of civil engineering across the U.S. and beyond. You can find that by going to twice.news. That's twice, which stands for This Week in Civil Engineering, twice.news. It'll bring it to the page. We have already had nine episodes. Um, and for example, in this last episode, we talked a little bit how robots are being built in the UK to detect and assess potholes. And there's interesting things like that. We also get into funding across the US in terms of uh, what states are getting what kinds of funding, things that can definitely be important to yourself and your career and your company. So again, check that out at twice.news and we're always open to getting your feedback. It's really important to us. And until next time, We do wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.